So this morning we start a church-wide study in Colossians. And because of our fantastic pastor David Fleming, um, I've been given a little dispensation and a little room here. So you've got the handout booklets, I hope, that everybody gets. And if you've got them, great. Make notes in them. Do whatever. We're going to do multiply on steroids. I mean, we're going to do like multiply to the fifth power. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper. We're going to have some really good opportunities to study Colossians in, in some additional depth. And I'm excited that you're here this morning to get started in it with us. So here's what I need you to do. Over the next few weeks, it will be extremely helpful if you will bring your Bible, either a hardbound Bible or bring an iPhone Bible or bring an iPad Bible or whatever it is. And in addition to bringing a Bible, bring a pen. Or if you're using an iPhone or an iPad, bring a finger so that you're able to make some notes or do whatever you need to do. We're looking at a letter that is in the New Testament. It is a letter called Colossians. It was written to a specific church in a town called Colossae. Hence the name, Colossians. So we need to start out by understanding what it is we're looking at. I threw up a satellite image of the, uh, uh, of the uh, Middle East, I guess. The Mediterranean world might be better uh, use for that because we've got most of Europe in there, northern Africa, the Middle East, and even into India and, and those parts of Asia. So if to orient, for those of you who uh, just think that the world revolves around Lubbock, Texas, and, and you kind of don't know where else there is other than Lubbock, up there on that boot is going to be Rome. We can throw in Greece. There are those islands there in the northern part of Greece would be Macedonia. And then we've got Jerusalem, which is always appropriate to put in in a Bible class. Now, what we're talking about today, though, is an area inside of modern Turkey. It was not called Turkey at the time. That's something that's much, much later in history, but in our minds, be thinking Turkey. So if you take Turkey out, or Asia Minor, as it's called, this is an example, a topographic map of Turkey, and it's here's Ephesus. I can make it a little bit bigger for you to be able to see, and here is Colossae. Now, those yellow lines on that map, those are Roman roads, So the Roman road from Ephesus, which was a huge port city, to the Euphrates River, which was one of the major uh, 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 lifelines going through Syria and and all the way down and through Babylon, if, if you take that road, it's going to oftentimes, doesn't have to, but oftentimes go through Colossae. So Colossae had that. Now, Colossae was in about a 10-mile-long valley that had the Lycus River going into it. So we can call it the Lycus Valley. And there were three main towns in the Lycos Valley. By the way, those mountains, you've got peaks that are as high as 8,000 feet. They got a lot of snow. So in the valley, though, you've got three main towns. The One of the largest ones was Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a banking center. Uh, when Cicero toured the area, he went to Laodicea to cash his letter of credit. 
and to get his money that he needed in that area. So Laodicea is a pretty big town during the time that Paul's writing the letter to the Colossians. The second town that's in this valley that's a big town is Hierapolis. And it was famous for its medicinal springs. There are volcanoes in this area. It was an earthquake-rich area. And as a result, you had a lot of heated water, especially in the area of the town of Hierapolis. And a lot of people would go there to get skin treatments and other things, maladies cured from from, uh, their efforts uh, uh, with the springs there, the hot springs. And also, the water there in the Lycus River had a chalkiness to it, a mineral content that was very chalky. And it, and it, it affected things. Uh, in fact, it was useful for Colossae because Colossae was a city that had been around over 500 years at the time Paul's writing this letter. But it had really become a much smaller town. It was probably, well not probably, it was the lesser of the three towns in the Lycos Valley. They did have a wool there because the volcanoes left rich soil. The, the sheep in the area were just fantastically fed. And they had wool and they would take a type of root from a plant and mix it with the chalky waters of the Lycos River and they could make a purple dye. And it was cheaper than the other way to make it off of uh, this very small little bit of sea life that you could get. And so it was a, a, a center for that kind of work. But it's not a big town anymore. And in fact, an earthquake around probably within five to ten years of Paul's letter destroyed the town and it wasn't rebuilt for hundreds of years. It's never been excavated. There are two universities right now that have it on their plans to excavate the town of Colossae. But they're not even 100% certain exactly where to find the ruins. So that's something to keep in mind. It'll be really neat to see it unfold. But for now, we've got the Lycos Valley. We've got the banking center. We've got the Hierapolis with the medicinal springs. And we've got Colossae. All of those towns are part of an area called Phrygia. Now, Phrygia has three basic people groups in its population. It has the natives from Phrygia who had been there for a thousand years. But in addition to the Phrygian natives, there were Greek traders and colonists who came in, who who moved into the area and, and they populated it and they were a significant amount of the population. The third most populous group, Jews. Jews had been repopulated into that area. And we've got an idea of how many Jews there were because Jewish men were all supposed to send either half a drachma or two days wages, depends on which reference you're reading, but send it each year back to the temple. And in 50 to 75 years before Jesus... The, the, the Roman rulers said no more shipping gold outside of Phrygia. I don't know if they were trying to continue it as a banking center, but they put a ban on shipping gold. The, 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 those Jewish men who were compelled to follow 
the Jewish law and continue to give their tax to the temple in Jerusalem, went ahead and paid it anyway. And Cicero writes about Flaccus, the, the, the governor Flaccus, F-L-A-C-C-U-S, Flaccus, I guess. Governor Flaccus actually accosted one of the shipments You can do the math from how much it was like 20 pounds of gold. You can do the math and work it out and figure out that there were probably around 10,000 males paying tax out of that area, which means you've got probably family-wise at least 50,000 Jews. That's a lot of people in such a small area. So with that type of a population it's not surprising that there would be a Christian church because the Christian faith is, at that point, not simply a Jewish faith, but a Jewish and Gentile faith, having its roots in Judaism. So you've got a church there in Colossae, and we need to know a couple of things about it before we get too deep into the letter. First of all, This is a church Paul's writing to, but Paul didn't start the church. It was probably started when he was nearby in Ephesus, where he lived for almost three years. But it wasn't Paul who started the church. In fact, you read the letter and you realize Paul would never even been there. But he did have a lot of friends there. At least, remember now, this is... 55 A.D., 60 A.D. era. They don't really have church buildings. They meet in people's homes. And we know one of the congregations, for lack of a better way of saying it, met in the home of Philemon. And so when Paul sent the slave Onesimus back to his slave owner, Philemon, that may be how the letter went. But Paul knew them, and so we've got this letter from Paul to this church in Colossae, and we call it Colossians. Now, this letter is what we call an occasional letter. An occasional letter means Paul didn't just write it, he had a reason to write it. It wasn't like, hey, I'm kind of bored. I think I'll just write the Colossians. No. Something had happened that... uh, Hang on one second. I need to call David Fleming, Pastor David here. Let's see here. 713-555, Pastor Me Now. (laughs) Hello, David. Pastor D? Yeah, Mark Lanier. Listen, I'm teaching the class right now. And, uh, well, first of all, I want to say great sermon. Great, great sermon. Did a great job today. I'm always thankful every time. Uh huh. Yeah, Brent's here. You know, no, he, he, he generally does not leave early. He stays. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, anyway, the reason I was calling is I needed to, to, to tell you a couple of things that I'd like you to do differently next week. <laughs> David? <laughs> David? I dropped the call. 
you didn't have the benefit of hearing the other side of that. Well, there wasn't another side. That was a fake call. Okay. <laughs> wasn't another side. But I want you to think of reading these letters, like Paul's letter, like a one-way phone call where you're only getting to hear half the conversation. You can imagine what David may have been saying based on the conversation you're getting to hear, but you don't really know. So when we're reading Colossians, we get an idea of what the Colossians are saying and what they're doing. But we don't really know. We've got to kind of read into the circumstances or the occasion for Paul's letter. Now that's going to be very important. Because there are going to be passages in here where Paul in chapter 2 says, uh, here, let's throw it up here. There are going to be passages in here where Paul talks about Colossians 2.21. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Now, there have been many sermons preached on this verse, Colossians 2.21, trying to convince people to live a life of misery. <laughs> you better not touch. Don't eat for taste. That stuff's supposed to be nutritious, not tasty. Because <laughs> donuts are so nutritious. <laughs> I want to tell you, that hole in the middle of the donut, there is not one bad thing for you in that hole. Do not taste, do not touch. You know, sexual relations between a husband and wife should be only for procreation, not for pleasure, no touching. There have been sermons preached. And the problem is, Paul's quoting the Colossians there on something he's trying to fix. The English Standard Version tries to tell you that by putting it in quotation marks. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He's saying, your people who are saying this are wrong. But if you don't read it understanding that Paul's addressing a problem, you don't pick that up so readily. So within the framework of that, think of this as a one-way phone call. Think of this as, as Paul trying to address issues that he needs to address. And then as you read it, you get a better glimpse. So this morning, um, uh, I taught live at Jersey Village. And they run a week behind us. So they'll get this next week. But I had to serve them up something unique for them. So they got to do homework. And as they're watching this, I'm seeing who did their homework. <laughs> because what I asked them to do is what anyone should do if they're reading and studying a letter of Paul's. The first thing you need to do is get your legal pad, lawyer, or get your tablet, or whatever it is you write on, your handy-dandy notebook, and read the letter in one sitting. 
And when you do, answer this question. Make notes. Why did he write this? And then write your ideas down. And when you read it through in one fell swoop, you will begin to not only understand why he wrote it, but you'll get the context of the various things that are in it. And then you break it down and try to understand it by its natural divisions. But you don't even want to do that until you've read the whole letter through. So when scholars write about this, why did he write it? Scholars call that the occasion. So what was the occasion that caused Paul to want to write? Bless you. Well, we can find it in a couple of passages. They're mainly in chapter 2. I'm going to throw them all up here at once. So we'll just look at them as we work through chapter 2. So in chapter 2, Paul explains why he's writing this letter. We'll go into it in more detail when we get to chapter 2, but we need to understand it to put the whole letter into context at the start. We can see this is why he's writing in part because of the way it begins. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, I told you Paul hadn't been there, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach the riches, dot, 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 verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul's worried They might be deluded, misled, taught wrongly about some plausible arguments, some things that might sound sensible to the Colossians. He says, even though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order. I'm rejoicing to see the firmness of your faith. And he continues... Therefore, as you received Christ in the Lord, Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, rooted and built up. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And not according to Christ. So he's writing because he's concerned that whatever's going on there at that end of the phone call. Paul is concerned that the the church is in danger of being captivated. By philosophies that are empty. That are false. That are deceptive. That are according to human tradition. We don't know what human tradition that was. We can surmise. We can surmise it might have been Greek human tradition. Plato. We can surmise it might have been Jewish human tradition. Illegalism. Both of those seem to have merit when you read the entire letter. But regardless, we know that Paul is concerned. And so he's writing this. According to the elemental spirits of the world... Now that's an interesting translation. Scholars debate on how to translate that. 
And we'll talk about that in more detail. But it might mean uh, uh, the idea of angelic spirit beings. But it might also just mean the, the traditions within uh, their lives. And so it's, it both are legitimate translations and, and it's an interesting process on how the scholars decide which way to go. You'll get a different translation in the King James than you will the English Standard Version. And so there are basically two camps on which way you take that. That's something you can just be on pins and needles for. You will not want to miss that Sunday. But we'll look at that. Um, in, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells. You've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This makes you, some scholars wonder, was there a fuss and a fight over the Jewish tradition of circumcision? You can continue to go down and look and it talks about how God disarmed and Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He says, so don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. Ah, that must be a problem that was happening. People were passing judgment on them. Now, it's very understandable that some Jewish people would try to pass judgment even if they weren't Messianic Jews, even if they were outside of the church. They might still be trying to pass judgment on those Jews within the church and the Gentiles. Here's, here's a problem that happened in the early church. If we go back to the Elmo for a moment. We know... Yeah, there we go. Thank you. We know that Christianity was the prophetic fulfillment that God had promised to the Hebrew nation. And because it's the prophetic fulfillment to the Hebrews... We see it as the final flowering of the plant, if you will. I'm sure there's a better way of saying it. But here's the deal. Jews knew that they were God's chosen people. Jews knew that God had given them the Torah, the law. So it's not hard for them to say... Hey, we're Jews. This is a Jew. Okay? Chosen people. Now, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also Jewish and a chosen people. So Jesus comes to save And if you want to be saved by Jesus, you need to convert to Judaism and be a Jew so that Jesus can save you. And this idea that to be saved, the Gentiles needed to go through and become Jewish was a real issue in the early church. 
The church ultimately determines that's not what God had planned. That's not the intentions. That's not the teachings of Scripture or of the Holy Spirit. And so they said, no, Jesus saves Gentiles as Gentiles. And Jews as Jews. Gentiles do not have to become a Jew. But you can see how the Jewish people might try and inflict upon the church in this early going this idea that you had to keep kosher. That you had to submit yourself to this idea of what you should eat, what you should touch, what you should handle. Paul says, look, these indeed make an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and, you know, giving your life and, 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 you know, oh, it makes you look like a holy Joe. Severity to the body. But he says it's not really of any use. It might give you the appearance of being holy, but it doesn't, it's not, that's not holiness. And so you've got to be real careful there. Well, now, these are the occasions of Paul's letter. So if we've got an understanding of that, now we can start looking at the letter a little bit more fully. And as we look at the letter, we'll look at some passages and we'll see some neat things in the passages. But we'll also see some opportunities to dig deeper. But that's the order we need to do it in. We read the whole letter. We figure out why he's writing it so that there's some context and some sense for what we're reading as we then take it in bite-sized portions and look at it contextually. So among the natural divisions of the book, you'll find in the first chapter, the first two verses are kind of something unto themselves. It's the introduction and the greeting. So in the first two verses, Paul says, he starts out, and he says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. Now, a few of you... I like this stuff in the Greek. And this is about as simple a Greek as you're going to get. So this is worth looking at. Paulos. Want to guess what word that is in Greek? Paul. You guys are brilliant. Apostolos. Woo! An apostle is someone who's been sent. We get the word postal from it or post office. It's a, an apostle is someone who has been sent. All right? So Paul, someone who's been sent of... Here's what he's, here's his message. He's been sent with a message of Christu, Christ, Iesu, Jesus. Dia, thelematos, dia uh, in this sense means um, uh, uh, through or because of. Thelematos means um, the, the will or the desire. Okay, Theu of God. So Paul starts out in his very first sentence. And he says, Paul, now they haven't seen him. They know who he is. 
But he identifies himself, Paul. Someone who's been sent with the message of Jesus Christ because through, because of, from the will of God. Paul wasn't sent to them by the church in Jerusalem. Paul wasn't sent to them by their mamas and daddies. He wasn't sent to them by the Caesar. He wasn't coming to them because he was bored. He wasn't coming to them because it's how he made his living. This was part of his paycheck. He'd not been sent as a missionary by a different church. He was someone who was sent with a message of Jesus Christ by the will of God. That's pretty good credentials. That's a pretty good way to start your letter. Then he has Kai Timotheos, that's and Timothy Ho Adolphos, the brother. Tois in Colossae's Hagios. To those who are in Colossia, Hagios Kai Pistois Adelphos. This is those who are holy, are saints, and who are faithful brothers in Christ. See how I did. Paul and Timothy of, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Yeah, that's okay. Charis. If you were reading a standard Greek letter, the odds are it would start with the person who sent it identifying themselves. They didn't have stationery with letterhead on it like we have now. I send out a legal letter. People know it's me. It says Lanier Law Firm at the top. So letters back then would typically begin with the author identifying her or himself. And Paul does so, and then identifying who it's to. And that's what he's doing here. And typically it would have a greeting that was close to this. Paul changes the greeting, the the Greek greeting, just a little bit down to just simple grace. Charis means grace. Grace, amen, to you. And irene, irene, which is peace. Now that's a Hebrew greeting. Shalom in the Hebrew. And so Paul's extending a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting and saying that they both are apotheu patros hemon. Both of those are from God, our Father. So there's some beauty here. Paul recognizes everyone's seat on the bus. And all of it is in reference to who God the Father is. See, Paul's seat on the bus is the person who's been sent with the message of Messiah Jesus by God's will. And Timothy, his brother, working with him. And they're writing to the church who's holy, who's faithful, extending them grace and peace from God, who's also their father. And so it's all wrapped up together in reference to who God is. And that's what Paul's doing here. So that's the first natural division. Now I want to move past, how are we doing time-wise? Ah, we're doing good. 
So the next natural division is Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Now this is a pastoral prayer. Paul is a pastor. He's got a pastor's heart, the heart of a shepherd for this church. And if we look at it, it's got some really cool stuff in it that's worth looking at. So I want to do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So here's the prayer. By the way, take note of how Paul does this. There's a little lesson to this for the way we deal with people. I mean, a lot of people will say, you know, I've got to correct this error that I see out there. And they just jump on someone like vicious. Paul never did that. In all of Paul's letters, even when he had some harsh rebuking that he had to do and some harsh training, he always starts out by loving on them and telling them the positives and building them up. So he says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, Messiah, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Messiah Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, some of you are Bible scholars and the alarm bells may be going off. Does that sound Pauline? Look at this. We've heard of your faith in Christ, the love of the saints, and the hope laid up for you. Faith, love, and hope. Where have you seen that before in Paul's writings? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The chapter on love. Look how it ends. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Do you know why love's the greatest? Because there will come a day where we are in God's kingdom at the end of days. And faith will be made sight. Hope has been achieved, but love will continue throughout all eternity. So this is very Pauline language. He admires them because he's heard of their faith. He's heard of the love that they've got. He's heard, uh, uh, he knows they're aware of the hope laid up for them. And he says, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Now, I need to pause for a moment, and we need to look at this word, gospel. I want to show it to you in the Greek. It's right here. A, I ought to write in it. This is a brand new Greek New Testament. I don't want to write in it. So, pretend I'm writing in it. Right here. See that E-U-A-G-G-E-L. I owe you. Hey, I owe you. If I wrote in this, I owe you a new Bible. Um, E-U is a Greek word all by itself. It means good. E-U, good. Doesn't sound like it'd be good to us. E-U, but it's good. 
you combine it with the Greek word for death, thanatos, and you get euthanatos or euthanasia, which is supposed to be a good death. I'm not a fan of it, but that's EU, good. Now, A-G-G, in Greek, when you have two G's together, you pronounce it as N-G. So when you've got this word A, let's put it, we can write on it this way, E-U equals good. All right? And then A, which is our A, and instead of a G-G, in our language, we would pronounce it N-G. E-L. That I-O-U at the end, that's just the, the, uh, the ending that tells you what part of speech it is. So ignore that. That's not really the root of the word. All right? So this is... Now, what does angel mean in the Greek? A messenger. Or in this sense... A message. And that's why this word that's translated gospel literally means the good news or the good message. Now that's important because we tend to think of gospel in the sense of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and, and that's useful, though they hadn't been written at the time Paul's writing this letter. When Paul uses the word gospel, I think Paul has something else in mind than, than, than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As I say, those hadn't been written. Do you know what the good news was for Paul? Do you know what the gospel was? The good news was this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried and on the third day resurrected. And he has ascended to the Father and he will come again to take his people so that where he is, there we may be also. The good news is the cross of Christ with all that it implies. If you doubt me at all on this, go back to 1 Corinthians again. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says it bluntly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says the following. Uh, there we go. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. The Greek literally means that the terms in which I gave you the gospel. The language I used. Here it is. This is the gospel which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved if you hold fast. Here it is. I delivered to you, first importance, what I received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's the gospel for Paul. When Paul talks about the gospel and he uses that word, he's talking about the death of Jesus for our sins. So if that's what Paul means when he uses the word gospel, look back at Colossians. Their faith, their love, and their hope, they've heard in the word of the truth, the gospel. 
the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Um, we got to pause for a minute. Paul was a rabbi. Paul studied under the most prominent rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. Paul knew his Bible. Do you see what this passage is saying? Do you hear an echo from the Old Testament scriptures? That the gospel, the death of Jesus, as going to the whole world, bearing fruit and increasing or multiplying. Does it ring a bell? Genesis 1, verse 28. God's just made man and God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and increase. Multiply. And fill the earth. That was the charge mankind had. The first Adam. But it's being found and brought to fruition through the death of Jesus. Which is actually increasing in the whole world, bearing fruit and multiplying in the whole world. You would find it over and over. I don't have time to look at the passages with you, but if you go to the PowerPoint for a moment, you can write them down. You'll see this is a constant theme for Paul. And not just Paul, and I mean in the Bible. Noah is told to be fruitful and multiply. Abraham, be fruitful and multiply. Isaac, fruitful and multiply. Jacob, fruitful and multiply. Israel is told to be fruitful and multiply. But then the final jazz comes in Isaiah 27 verse 6 where the Messiah is going to be the ultimate fruitful and multiply throughout the entire world. Isaiah 27 6 is just a tremendous passage. In those days, these are the days to come. This is uh, uh, the days of the Messiah. Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. I mean, Paul understood that what was happening was the unfolding of God's eternal plan. Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan, the ultimate blessing for all of the earth to be fruitful and to multiply. It's that faith, hope, and love that should be increasing over and over and over. And so when Paul's writing this to the Colossians, he's not just coming up with stuff. He's writing about eternal truths. It is the death of Jesus that's the answer to the problems that have existed and the completion, the completion of the charge that was given to Adam and humanity in general. It was given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel to be fruitful and multiply the love of God, the salvation of God throughout the world. 
And this is what Paul says, you've understood. And so from the day we've heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I've got to tell you, that's an Old Testament passage as well. And we're running out of time, so I'm not able to tell you all of this stuff. But that passage echoes Isaiah 11, 2 and 9. Let me at least just... Isaiah 11, 2 and 9. I hate not being on time. But you got to see this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's the Davidic line, the line that Jesus was from. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall bear fruit. Paul's just said, fruitful. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's what Paul's talking about. He says, this is bearing fruit among you. It's increasing. And I'm going to pray it continues to multiply. In spiritual wisdom and understanding and knowledge... That you will continue bearing fruit, whoops, in every good way. That you'll be in strength. That you'll be transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's an echo of the Exodus language where they were transferred from slavery into the promised land. And so these are constant motifs throughout Scripture that Paul is weaving into his letter to the church in Colossae. They don't need to be fallen prey to these empty traditions and and this bizarro, wacko stuff. They just need to be firmly planted in the root truth of the message of God that's been there for thousands of years. Because it is through the death of Jesus that fruit can be born and all of us can be who God made us to be. And who could ask for anything more? What a wonderful prayer. I'm really excited to get to open Colossians with you. You've got those books. Look at those books. They've got important information. It's not, I'm not teaching out of the book because the book's not adequate. The book's fantastic. It's got great stuff in there. I just want to dig a little deeper and, and, and go a diff- add some stuff to it. I mean, you, you, you get a little more, okay? Can I bless you and then we'll be through. Father, I thank you in the name of Jesus for everyone who, who is uh, paying attention to who you are, what you've said, and what you've done. Lord, tune our minds and our hearts. Mold our will around a desire to see you and understand you more deeply. To not just call you Lord, but to see you as Lord in our lives. May your message, your good news that Jesus has made things right, may it percolate through not only our own lives, but through the words and and the relationships that we've got to bring your kingdom in multiplying ways throughout this world. We pray through the righteousness of Jesus, not our own, Lord. Amen.